Hey, I want to show you a photo that I posted on my Instagram a couple of years ago. And the photo, it'll be on the screen. Uh, it's a bit blurry, I know, but let me describe to you what it is. So it's a photo of a beautiful sunny day. Remember those. Um, the water is pristine blue, so inviting. There's people swimming on boogie boards, having a great time at the beach. And there's this little insignificant sign in the front that says, shark spotted today, enter water at own risk. So I posted this on my Instagram and immediately I had friends from other countries being like, only in Australia would you then see children in the water? <laughs> only in Australia would you see people just, yeah, frolicking in the waves and just ignoring that little sign in the shark-infested waters. And I know that many of you will probably come up to me after the service and ask me, well, did you swim? <laughs> yes, of course I did. Look at those conditions. It was pristine. And so I'm going to do a little social experiment with us this morning. Who here in the room seeing a warning sign on the beach regarding sharks would swim in the water? Nice, nice. Okay, okay. Who here would send their siblings, their friends, their children into the water just to test it out? Oh my gosh. Crazy, crazies. Who here would stay safely on the beach? Okay, great. So we've got a bunch of good rule followers in the room. I love that. I love that. You know, we have a bunch of warnings all the time. We have warnings to drive certain speed limits. We have warnings uh, on the beach about rips and tides. We have warnings about the weather. We have all sorts of warnings. But what we then do with those warnings evidently differs. And, you know, we don't just have warnings happening in our life, but there's actually a bunch of warnings that sit in the pages of Scripture in the Bible. And one of the questions that I want to kind of front-end this message with is what do we do with the warnings that we find in the Bible? How do we react to them? How do we respond? Does it change our behavior or do we just go on and do it anyway? Do we swim in the shark-infested waters of life or do we take note and warning about, uh, take note and, and attention about these warnings well? So what we have in our series at the moment, Life and Love, as we walk through the epistle of 1 John, we have a whole bunch of warnings. And this morning is no different. We have a few warnings that I want to uh, bring our attention to. And my hope is that we uh, recognize these warnings, but then we behave in a way that sets us up well, that sets us up to reflect God for us to be formed more into his image. And uh, I wonder if you've been reading through First John or you've been in church the last couple of weeks and you've kind of thought, Anna, this is going over my head a little bit. It's a confusing text. I don't really understand what he's talking about. I don't really know what John's writing at. Um, and let me just say at the very beginning, today is going to be a complicated text. Today may, may be confusing. There may be some big things that come up. Um, gosh, there were some big things that came up for me as I was unpacking it and studying it. Uh, but I want you to know that you are in very good company. You are amongst friends, not only in this room and online, but actually a bunch of scholars um, 
academic people who study this text write commentaries, big, thick commentaries on this, also join with us in, in the complexity and the complication of this text. And one of my favorites, this is very comforting as you go to then research in order to prepare for a sermon. I felt very comforted by one of uh, the commentators, Alfred Plummer. He wrote a commentary on first, second, and third John. And he said this, he said, few commentators have satisfied themselves with their own analysis of this epistle. Still fewer have satisfied other people. And so I just want to say from the beginning, if some of this goes over your head, that's okay. If some of it seems like we're skimming through it really quick and you're thinking, Anna, like you need to unpack this more. Trust me, I know. But we've got 30 minutes together and we've got a lot of text to run through. So my hope is that we kind of, we skim the surface. I can point to some of the things underneath the surface. surface. And my real hope is that you leave this place and you feel like you have an appetite to want to study the Word of God. You want to reread it. You want to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to sense what God is doing in this text. So we are jumping in into 1 John chapter 2. It's written at about 80 to, uh, sorry, 90 to 100 AD by John, who also wrote uh, the Gospel of John. Um, and so we've got a lot happening, but chapter two is where we are heading for today. It is on the screen. We're starting at verse 15. It says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Okay, so we're off to a nice easy start here. Um, what is John saying? What is the lens in which we're wanting to approach these few verses? And I, I told the story at the beginning with the sign of this warning sign to make sure that that's the lens in which we read this uh, passage. It's a big fat warning sign saying make sure you, you check your heart, make sure you check uh, some of these warnings so that you can proceed with caution, but you can proceed following God. So the first warning sign that we see in these verses is a warning about our desire. First warning is a warning of desire. Last week, Michael unpacked uh, the beginning of chapter two where there's really this encouragement to walk in the light. There's this distinction between uh, the light and the darkness, but there's also a highlight of, of what sin does in our life. And Michael taught us last week that sin is when our heart caves in on itself. At its very nature, it is self-serving, it is selfish. And uh, what John is doing here is he's just saying a very similar thing, but using different language, using a different context. He's setting up these, these opposites so that we know, okay, which camp are we falling into? He's saying, you know, recognize the difference between falsehood and truth. Recognize the difference between darkness and light. Recognize the difference between our love of the world and our love for God. And, and the idea is that these are actually mutually exclusive objects of our love. And, and you might be thinking, well, what does he actually mean by the world? Isn't it John himself in his gospel who said that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son? 
Didn't God himself, when he created in Genesis 1, say that it was in fact good? Aren't we commanded to love one another? So, so how does this reckoning and how does this verses around not loving the world sit with us? Are we meant to look at creation and think, oh, it's, it's not good? Are we meant to look at one another and be guarded to make sure we don't love one another? No, that doesn't seem right. So what is John saying? I, I was thinking, you know, if we were to have that lens where we, we hate the world, we don't love the world, you'd, you'd see a sunrise and you'd say, oh, it's hideous, I hate it. <laughs> or you'd see this, the miraculous celebration of new birth and you'd think, oh, no, here we go again, <sighs> on it again. Or you'd say, you know, someone's celebrating something amazing and beautiful and you'd just say, no, 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 must hate the world. It doesn't seem consistent with the message that we've had throughout Scripture. It doesn't seem consistent with what God himself does. So it causes us, whenever we read something like this, to then ponder and to question, okay, so if that doesn't sit right with, with the meta-narrative, with the big picture of Scripture, what is John saying? And he's saying, okay, so if creation is not bad, if the natural world is not bad, then it is the love of the world. And so it goes deeper than just what we do and where we are, but it, it hits us deeper at a heart level. What are our attitudes, our decisions, what's our behavior, what's happening internally of us when we love the world and when we love God? Why should we love God more than we love the world? Why is that a warning to us? Why is that commanded of us? David Jackman, who wrote a commentary on 1 John, he says this, our affections are set either on this world or on God. And I love how the message translation says it. It says, love of the world squeezes out love of the Father. You know, it's, it's impossible to love them both. What do I mean? If you have your first love for the world, if you have that as a number one place in your heart, what then happens is it shapes and it affects how you then view God. So if you love the world and then the world starts challenging things of God, whose side do you take? If your love for the world is number one, it will then affect and influence how you view God. Alternatively, if your love for God is first, what then happens to your view of the world? God then shapes your view of the world. God then puts a nice thick lens in which you view what's happening. So when you look at creation through God's lens and through your love of God, you recognize that creation is something for us to steward well. It's something that points to the glory of God. It's something beautiful and, and mysterious and, and wondrous. When, the, when God shapes your view of love, you then are able to love in a way that replicates God's heart. One where love is patient and love is kind. It does not boast. These are the ways that we want to be led and influenced and shaped by. So what John here is saying is, hey, what's number one in your heart? What is affecting how you live? Because if you've got love of the world, it's going to shape how you live. If you have love of God, it'll shape how you live. So pay attention be warned. Make sure you look at the desires of your heart and see which one 
you're landing on. Another way to put it, we jump back to Genesis chapter 3, where we look at Adam and Eve. And what happens in uh, chapter 3 is we see that there's the tempter who comes and starts to shape and influence how Eve has heard God. And what does the tempter say? He says, did God really say? It's not good. Did God really say? Oh, surely he's... He doesn't really mean that. Or, or are you sure you don't want to just take what looks so good? And, and the tempter, what's happening here is that he's, he's putting in a different line of thought. He's shaping how Eve perceives God. And he's saying, you know, well, God might change your mind. You've got to just start living. Come on, take it into your own hands. There's this temptation for what looks good, for what is pleasing to the eye, and for what then enables wisdom and understanding. And what I love is that, you know, these things don't change. It's exactly what John is saying. He's saying that we need to be aware of our desires because we will have lust of the flesh, what looks good for ourselves, lust of the eyes, what is pleasing and desirable, and what is the pride of life which is the growing in wisdom and us wanting to do it on our own, thinking that we don't need God's help, but rather we esteem to have autonomy and just and to live life apart from God. And why this is comforting is because, you know, the enemy doesn't have a whole bunch of new tricks. We are not unaware of his schemes, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But rather these things, these, these desires the longing for us to want to change what God has said, what he deems as good, the warning sign that God puts up, we want to change that. And so what John is doing is he's saying, be careful. Is your love of the world or is your love of God? Which one is it? Which one has first place? Which one affects the other? That's what John is saying here. Jackman then, uh, in his commentary, he says this. He compares this desire, this, this lust, as drinking salt water. He says, far from bringing satisfaction, the unquenchable thirst is in fact increased. And that is no way for a child of God to live. So the Christian has to learn to say no to the world's temptations. Drinking salt water... Who's tried it? <laughs> On purpose? Ooh, gross. Drinking salt water, it just makes you more thirsty. It is not satisfying. You don't finish a nice big glass of salt water and go, mm, so glad I did that. It leaves, a f- a f- you feel sick after you drink salt water. But the problem is the enticement of sin, the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life is just like drinking salt water. It seems desirable. It seems like it'll do the job, but it won't. It'll leave us longing for more. And I love this uh, encouragement that Jackman writes is to say it's not how a Christian is to live. We need to learn to say no. And luckily for us, we have not been given a spirit of fear, but one of power and of love and of what? Self-control, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Also, self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, meaning as we walk in step with the Spirit, uh, His fruit is produced in our lives. And one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit found in Galatians 5 
is self-control. And that even when we feel very weak and even when there's a point where we're just like, you know what, I can't do this, I'm, I'm giving in to temptation, I don't have the strength for this. What does Christ say? He says, my grace is sufficient for you because luckily for us, his power is not made perfect in our strength, is not made perfect when we are perfect, but his power is made perfect in our weakness. These are the truths that we find in scripture. These are the truths that we can combat these desires, these warnings. This is what we have to fall back on which is of great comfort that God is the one on our side and will help us when it comes to desires. So John challenges us to ask the question, whose friend are we really? Are we a friend of God or a friend of the world? First warning is a warning of desire. The second warning that we jump into is a warning where people are starting to deny Christ, to deny truth. And so we jump in at verse 18 where we picked off. It said, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Verse 20, But you... Have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. All right, so some big claims here. I wonder how you're feeling. When I first read this text, my immediate thought was, Michael, what? Why did you give me this one? Because there's some big things that uh, can seem really hard to discover in this kind of context and and rather quickly. And so what I want to do is to kind of highlight a few things that we just read and recognize that I can't give the full explanation Uh, that I would hope to in this time, but some things that I hope will put you at ease. Because it's easy when you read this to feel attacked or to feel confused. And and that would, you know, if you're you're feeling attacked, like John is coming out swinging, that, that would be how you feel if you're reading it wrong. And so my hope is that as we kind of unpack some of these terms as we look at what is it that John is really saying and and what is he declaring, that it will become more understandable and digestible for you and so that we can live out from a place of understanding here. So let's go. It's a lot, so we're going to go through it quick, so bear with me. First thing that I want to highlight straight off the bat is the last hour. What is John writing here, saying the last hour. Is it physically the last hour as he's writing it? Um, is it kind of like a last moment? Or, or what's, what's going on here? So the last hour is something that refers to the, the gap in time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So we currently are in the last hour. You could say the last hours, if that makes more sense to you. Um, but more accurately, it is the time between Pentecost and then the second coming. 
So we are in this. So this is applicable, yes, to 100 AD, but very much for us today as well. The next thing that I just want to highlight is that little word there, antichrist. What is that? Um, is that some kind of, I was going to say, oh, zombie apocalyptic term? Is that something that's foreign? Is that something that we just put labels on all the time? You, sir, are the Antichrist. No, okay, so what is he talking about? John uses this language, Antichrist, and there's, there's not many other uh, writers in the New Testament who also use this language, but it's not a unique concept. And so what we see is that Jesus himself talks about the fact that there will be people who claim to be Christ themselves as false Christs and false prophets, he says in Matthew 24, 24. Also, Paul uses this language as well when he talks about a man of lawlessness, one who proclaims himself to be God, proclaims himself to be Christ, and that's in 2 Thessalonians. So there is this continuity about the fact that there will rise up people who are against Christ or who them themselves proclaim that they are Christ. And so there's this rivalry to the, the truth. There is this rivalry to Christ that happens. And whilst we don't necessarily use this language now today, would we not say that we are also in a culture where there's people who rival Christ? where there's people who say that perhaps they are offering a better way, that they are offering truth, that they are offering the life. There's people who are constantly pulling our attention, our gaze, our focus away from Christ and of things of this world. Next, I want to go to out from us. What is John saying here, this notion of out from us? And, and it's really a picture of community, of, of the, the forming of the first church, and he's saying that there's people who left community. There's people who kind of said, oh, I don't need that, or started breeding their own gospel, their own message. And, and the, the point here is that, um, in verse 17, is that it's really about community as a place where we encourage one another, where we want to make sure that none of us drift away. We want to be in community so that we're able to weigh up doctrine together. We're able to say, oh, I don't know really what that meant. Can you help me find this? And it's a place where we point each other to the truths found in Scripture. And if you're in a community and you're not sure if what they're preaching is right, if, if something doesn't sit right with you, always measure it up with Scripture. Because that is what John is trying to prove is that whilst there's a lot happening culturally at the time, he's making sure that, hey, if you're in community, make sure that it's a community that's preaching Christ. Make sure that it's a community that is confessing the gospel, the good news, the truth that is found in our Lord Jesus. The next uh, thing that I want to raise from us is where it says all of you, referring to the truth. And, and we might think, okay, what's that about? And just super quick, the context of the day was talking about, uh, there was this group of people called the Gnostics. And uh, Gnosticism was rising up in the time and it was providing all this contrast of opinion, contrast of spiritual belief. And so there were people in Gnosticism who said, yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was not fully man. There were people in Gnosticism who said, yes, Jesus was fully man, but not fully God. And so they had parts 
of it right, but parts of it very wrong. And the other thing that they would say is that Gnostics would try and keep the information, the special revelation, to themselves. And they would say, we are the only ones that can know the truth, and we will tell you what it is. And what John is doing here is he's trying to speak against some of those cultural uh, norms that were rising up, speak against some of the things that were common in that day and age. And he's saying, no, 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 not some of you can understand what the truth is. All of you can, because you have the anointed one within you, that you have the spirit of God who reveals all truth to you, in you. So don't fall to the lies that only certain people can interpret the word of God. Don't fall into the lies that only certain people can understand what God is really about. The same applies to you and me, friend. It is not just myself or Michael or Fiona or Jason or whoever's on this platform that proclaims the truth because you can't know it as well. That's not the truth. The truth is in here. And we want to be a community that doesn't rely just on preaching, doesn't rely just on what you're watching on YouTube or podcasts you're listening to. Remember that you have the Holy One, the Spirit of God within you. And He will show you and reveal to you what truth is as you dive into the Scriptures. So have a spirit of discernment, knowing that He who is within you is able to illuminate truth. Lastly, in this section, you would see towards the end, there's this repetitive nature of this warning against denial. It says, you know, whoever denies the truth. And, and there's this constant kind of anything that's repeated in Scripture is worth taking note of. So John is saying that there, there are some truths that people are getting wrong. And it's really important when it comes to Jesus that we know what we believe and that it is the truth. And there's two things that Paul, sorry, John, is stating here. He's saying, firstly, the first doctrinal truth that we need to know is that Jesus is the Christ. Not Jesus is a Christ, not Jesus is one of the Christs, Jesus is the Christ. So this means that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one that they were waiting for, the one who was going to make relationship right with the Father. He is the one from whom we can receive eternal life. No one else, not him and something else of this world. No, 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 Jesus is the Christ, the one and only Christ. The second truth that uh, John is really making sure that we know and that we don't deny is that Jesus is the Son of God. That it's not God and the Son doing different things, but no, they are unified. There's this... Uh, the verse that says, you know, if you know the Son, then you know the Father. And if you know the Father, you'll know the Son. There is this unification that they are one. And that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And he is a Son of God. Whoever acknowledges that the Son, that Jesus is the Son of God, is then able to be restored unto the Father. You know, these truths point to who Jesus is. And if they're and if what John is saying is, hey, if anyone's preaching otherwise, that's not the truth. If anyone is preaching that Jesus is not the Christ, that's not the truth. So be aware, be on high alert, 
that we know what we know, that we know that Jesus is the Christ and that he is, in fact, the Son of God. So do you believe these truths? Do you know them? Do you live from a place of them? Or are you still searching? Are you still wondering? Are you still finding out? And what I want to encourage you, regardless of where you are, is that wherever you search for truth, you will find it in the Bible. Because the pages of Scripture reveal Jesus. And Jesus is, yes, the way. He is the life. But he is also the truth. So search Go deeper and deeper in the word of God and you will find Jesus. You will find truth. Do not uh, fear your questions, your wrestlings, your challenges. God can handle it. He, he beckons it because as you dive deeper into him, you will find truth. So that's my encouragement to you today is to know what you believe and to live from it. Our belief that Jesus is the Christ Uh, sets us up for our whole gospel message. That yes, all of us have sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but God had compassion upon us and he sent his one and only son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that even though we have fallen short and even though we have stuffed up and even though we've been in a place where we've lived out of relationship with God, through Jesus' death and resurrection, on the cross, we are restored to the Father. He has made a way for us and he has covered a magnitude of sins so that we can be blameless before God, but only in and through the work of Jesus. Do you know this truth? Do you live your life from it? The first warning is a warning against the desires of our heart, making sure that it's in a place of God and not the world. The second warning is one where we need to know the truth and not deny it. And our third warning is, sorry, it's not a warning, it's an encouragement. Um, Our third kind of next step, our third what next, our third kind of how we do this is found in the last part of the passage for today. So come with me to verse 24. It says this, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And it, this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, Remain in him. You know, when I read that and uh, just that last section where it's real and not counterfeit, I couldn't help but remember Michael's sermon from last week talking about zebras and what was the other thing? Just testing you, donkeys. Um, If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's fine. Go and watch the sermon. Um, But what is John's encouragement here? What is, what is the secret source? What is he saying that helps us to navigate these warnings? What is he saying that helps us choose God and not the world? What is he saying that helps us find truth? It's highlighted there on the screen for you. It is that we are to remain in him. John, in his gospel in chapter 15, says, Remain in me as I remain in you, talking about the Lord. 
Without me, you can do nothing, but with me, you can bear much fruit. When you remain in me, it is a place where we are transformed more into his likeness. But how can you remain in a God that you do not know? How can you remain in a God who doesn't have the first place in your heart? How can you remain in a God where you you don't know what the truth really is? Colossians 3 verse uh, 16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly. Let the word of God dwell in your hearts richly. You know, another word for abide, uh, remain is abide or be faithful to or steadfast in or immersed in, stay the course of. But my favorite for this morning, because this is a sermon and I need them all to line up perfectly, is dwell. My third point for this morning is that we need to dwell with God. We need to dwell with him. We need to let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly. Because, hey, when we've got the word of Christ dwelling in our hearts richly, we're able to decipher those desires. We're able to acknowledge when we're lusting after something that we shouldn't be, or when pride rises up in us. When we dwell in the word of Christ and have that in our hearts, we can identify it, we can arrest it, we can detect it and we can make it obedient unto the Father. But only when we're dwelling in Christ. When we let the word of God dwell in our hearts richly, it's from that place that then we're able to establish what truth is. We're able to stand firmly on our convictions and not deny them. When the voices of culture change all the time, when they say that there is no truth and that there's no such thing as the absolute truth, we can go, okay, but, but what does scripture say about this? What does the word of Christ say about this? It says that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is this, the Christ, that Jesus and the Father are one. Oh yeah, that is what happens when you let the word of God, the word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly. To be able to navigate these warnings, to be able to identify them and then move forward in a way that's going to be helpful not only for our lives but for those around us as we're transformed more into the likeness of God, we need to remain in Him. And I wonder what that looks like for you this week to remain in God. And do you know God in order to remain in Him? As I've said 50 million times, This is a great place to start. Let the truth of God shape your life. Let the truth of God shape your heart, your mind, your soul, your spirit. And I hope that, you know, as John is kind of setting up these warnings for us, making sure that we recognize that the way ahead is is tricky and, and hard, that we are then brought to a place where we feel equipped and we're able to receive the life that God intended for us, life and life in abundance. Nothing second to that, but so much more than we could ever hope or imagine. That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So as we finish today, I wonder if you'd stand with me as you're able. And we're just going to create some space to let my many words (laughs) 
kind of simmer down and for us to listen to what God might be saying to us as a community this morning. So would you join with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I have it heavy on my heart this morning that we are to be a people who are shaped by you, to have the word of you in our hearts richly. And Lord, there may be things that were spoken of this morning, things that arose for people Lord, where your Holy Spirit is wanting to speak, perhaps convict, shed light on. And God, I thank you that there is always compassion in your eyes, that you did not come to condemn us, but rather make a way for us to restore broken relationships. So Lord, I just want to lift up those in the room and those online who seem to be struggling with the desires of this world. Where it seems so enticing or we seem so bound up in it, Lord. God, I pray for your truth and your light to shine into the darkness, Lord, I pray that you will remind us that we have a spirit of power and love and self-control. God, I pray that we will not feel defeated by the desires of this world, but rather we will long to have you as number one in our life so that we can view things through your lens. Lord, for those of us in the room who and not sure of your truth, God, will you reveal yourself? Lord, reveal yourself through scripture, reveal yourself through creation or through a friend or whatever means necessary, Lord. I pray that you'll reveal yourself to people because I thank you that for those who come with questions, Lord, you have answers, that you are in fact the way, the truth and the life. So, Lord, I pray through your spirit you'll put in a hunger and a desire to want to know more of you, to not sway from the truth, but to find you in it. And lastly, God, as we are a community of your people, I pray that we will dwell with you, that we will remain in you, abide in you, be found in you, Lord, I pray that that will be the top of our priority this week. That we will see you in everything, God. Help us to live a life not void of you, but filled with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As... uh, We kind of just looked at some scripture this morning and if you're wondering who Jesus is and if he is worth your life and your following and your heart, our answer here is definitely yes. And we would love to pray with you and to meet with you. And after the service, we're going to have people down here who 
I would love to take that next step with you and answer any questions that you might have. So don't leave this place this morning. If you sense that God is calling your name, don't leave this place without hearing from Him and and taking that next step if you feel that's what's on your heart. But we're going to respond in worship now and as we proclaim that Jesus did in fact pay it all. So as we sing this gospel truth, let's not sing it without conviction, but let's sing it with passion and, and knowing that this is a place where we declare the truth of God. So our team is going to lead us now.